here. All right, so Hebrews chapter four is where we've we've come to, and uh, let me grab my other my big book of notes over here. <clears throat> Of course, the theme, the overall theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better, better priest, better covenant, and so on and so forth. And the uh, in chapter three, we he cites that example from the Old Testament, from Numbers chapter thirteen and fourteen, talking about how the Israelites, when they're going to the Promised Land, they did not have they didn't have the faith to go in. They didn't have the faith to go in. And there's some interesting things that, that take place in those in those reads, but that's that shows us the Hebrew nature of it. He makes these appeals to things that are legendary in the Hebrew community, in the Jewish community. Just like if you just like we're talking here about different things. There's there's things that happened here in Sheboygan that are unique to us, they're really, really connect with us. I mean, things from American history. Uh, where if you went to a different country uh, they wouldn't make any sense. So he really drives this, This he really strikes at the urgency of believing God so you can enter into the place of belief. Oh, hey. Where are you going to sit, Rick? You can sit right here by Bob, keep him awake. <laughs> We need somebody to join the church named Rand, so we could say Bob Rand. So in chapter 4, the author says that just like the ethnic national Israel of old, if they don't trust God's message in Jesus Christ, then they're toast. And this is a, this is a easy way to say it. Put your faith in him and go in or not. Now remember the the controversy is... These Hebrew Christians are thinking about going back to traditional Judaism because it's harder to be a Christian in the Roman Empire than it is to be a Jew. It's, it's more difficult. And so there's all these pressures to go back. Of course, it's not just societal pressures. I don't know if you've ever been. I've only been a Baptist my whole life, so that's all That's all I know. Um, but if you come from a particular, a particular faith tradition, let's say maybe you're a Roman Catholic or uh, Maybe you're from uh, the Mennonites or, or some real strong religious group. If you convert to a different sect of Christianity sometimes, if you're trying to become more faithful to the Bible, the family pressure can be intense, can't it? Grandma will say, I don't know how many times we've had this happen over the years where you go out talking to somebody in the neighborhood and you get them a track and talk to them about the Lord and say, come go to church with us you know, this, this week at Faith Baptist and and then uh, they don't come. And you call us, what's what's going on? How come you're not coming over? Like you said, well, I told my grandma I was coming to church over there with you guys. And she said, well, if you're going to go to church, just go with me. <laughs> there's all these family family pressures that are exerted. And so there's, there's a lot going on here. And so the apostle, you know, he whoever is writing this, I always say that Paul, <laughs> the, the writer, he just goes big. 
and says, it's either believe this and enter in or don't believe this and perish. And so the point here is that they turn back to their promise of God, they'll miss the rest promised in the gospel. And before we look ahead, let's go back and revisit Numbers 13 through 14. Do you really get a good look at what's happening in this? Because there are some, we glossed over it last time. Numbers 13. Now the spies, the spies go into the land in the first half of chapter 13. In verse 21, it says, they went up and spied out the land. This is Numbers 13, 21. They went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab. Near Labo Hamath, and they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. It gives their journeys. They came down from the valley of Eshtol, verse 23. They cut down a branch. And uh, they, they can see it's magnificent. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and all the people and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Now, so there's the positive. It's just like God said. Then you have the however. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So there's the negative. It's, it's magnificent, but there's all these bad guys there. So the, the doubt is in their mind, the big question mark. But Caleb quiets the people before Moses. And he says, let's go up. Notice these words. Let's go up at once. <laughs> No time, don't think about it. Don't hesitate, because the longer you sit around and chew the fat about it, the longer you think about it, what's going to happen? You're gonna, your doubt's going to creep in, inactivity. And you, can, and you can see this a lot of times. You get a work party together, a bunch of guys standing around, hands in their pockets, you know, a cup of coffee, and you start talking. And what, what happens when one of a bunch of guys are standing around talking? One story very often leads to what? Another story. Another story. <laughs> <laughs> one joke goes to my joke and before you know it you you burnt half hour an hour you know and it's just what what is going on here and so doubts then you have a project you have so some kind of something you've assembled to do you kind of have a plan at the beginning this is what we're going to do then somebody says you know i was thinking last night about doing it a different way it's their, their delay caleb says no we can't do this we can't let doubt get root we must enter in at once, enter in at once. For we are well able to overcome it. Well able. But that's only one voice. That's Caleb's voice. Then the men who gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they, now this statement is, is quite striking. Stronger than we are. They just came out of Egypt, delivered by God's mighty hand. Was Egypt stronger than Israel? Of course they were. They just they went to the Red Sea. Was the Red Sea stronger than Israel? Sure it was. But nothing they face is stronger than God. So this the doubt is rooting in there. And Caleb is saying we must continue to go forward. So verse 32. They brought to the people a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is as a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height 
And the, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from Nephilim. We seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So there's the, there's the, there's the good news, just as God said, but then there's the giants. Now here's a thing to think about. Why, 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 why are there giants there? What was, why, why does God put something there in the land to cause them to pause? Why does he do it? Now, I put here to look at, it said to reveal true faith. If you look at Mark 16, Mark 4, verse 16, you kind of see this throughout Scripture, where God causes us to exercise our faith. It's easy to exercise your faith. Let's say you're going to start tithing. You know, you sit out at the house and you look at your budget and it says, you know, you got, it looks like you have plenty of money. You have plenty of money to pay the bills. You got plenty of dough. And so you say, I'm going to start tithing. So you write you a check for 10% or whatever, whatever it is you do. And it's no sweat because you got the, you got the money. But the, the difficulty is when you sit down and look at your budget and you see every dollar you got in is going out. You're maxed out. All your obligations are there. You think, well, I can't, I cannot tithe. I cannot give to the Lord. I can't afford to give to God. Of course, the old adage is you can't outgive God. There's a blessing in giving. And so you're, you're faced with a difficulty. And that is exactly where I found myself, young married guy, trying to scratch out a living. It's where you find yourself. I, can I do this or not do this? So obstacles cause us to exercise our faith. We have to have some challenge to cause us to, to motivate us to trust in God, to trust in God. So the giants are in the land. The, the positive is true. There is, the land is just as God said, but there are giants there. So the giants are what cause them to exercise their faith muscles. And the presence of the giants, just the news of the giants, what does it reveal about a good portion of Israel? They are not, not people of faith. Not people of faith. Now I put Mark 4, 16. And let's take a reading from that. This is, this is also in uh, Matthew's gospel as well. Mark 4. It's the parable of the seed and the sowers. Or the parable of the soils. Four sixteen. Now this is that story where the the sower goes out to sow and he sows the seed on hard ground, rocky ground, weedy ground, and good ground. Sixteen. Jesus he's explaining the parable. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then. Tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately they fall away. So difficulty reveals true faith. Reveals true faith. This is something you see all the way through, all the way through even the New Testament. It's got that, that great reading in John chapter 6, verse 66, <laughs> where Jesus, after teaching about the bread of life, what does he say? It says that, this is a hard teaching, and after that day, many people walk no longer with him. What do you what what had he, what had he just said? He just said, "You got to eat my body, you got to drink my blood, 
or you can't have eternal life. He has just made made a very powerful statement that people go, hey, that's too much. I cannot go along with that. So all the way through, you see this thinning, thinning, thinning. Jesus says, uh, if you follow me, you better count the cost. And he says, unless a man hates his father, hates his mother, hates, hates, hates everybody, he can't be my disciple. Take up the cross and follow me. All this, these, uh, I would call them a winnowing out statements to reveal what true, what true faith is. And so the giants here reveal, in my opinion, they reveal true faith. And then you have chapter 14 in Numbers 14, the grumbling. Well, it's not working out how they thought it was going to work out. There is the grumbling. The grumbling. You're... Grumble, grumbling is a, is a powerful thing, isn't it? It's a powerful force. When everybody starts belly aching, you, know, you start thinking, well, i got to do something here. Something has to take place. So everybody's grumbling about it. Look at 14.1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people went that night. Now, this is striking. you got to pay attention to the words all. Probably not even worth talking about, but it just leaves that in my mind. Does all here mean all persons without exception? Because there, there are a few people who are not complaining, Joshua and Caleb, and maybe others. But the majority are making a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said one to another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Here's what they're, they're, they're saying. Could, did God bring us out here to die? Is that why God did this? God brought them out there to thrive and to prosper. But they've taken their eyes off of God and put it on the circumstances. And this is something we fall prey to constantly, is we're like Peter on the sea. And we, we can walk on the water and go out to the ship, but then we start looking at the storm, looking at the waves. And we forget what we're, we're, already, on the, we're already on the water. God's already sustaining us. He's helping us. We get lost. We get uh, you know, intimidated by circumstances, right? So the, the people have lost sight of it. They've, they've forgotten God's promise. God's promise. George Mueller, who was a, a British, he was German. Actually, he wasn't German. What's those other two countries over there? Where was Hitler from? Austria. Austria. He was Austrian. And he wound up being a pastor in England. And they had a children's home. And they, 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 they were not supported officially by any denomination, even though he was a Baptist. He prayed in his support day by day. Day by day. And his, and his, main, his main resource was he would... Look for promises in the scripture to claim. And so a lot of people in his day, and they still recommend it this way, I think, they would pray first and then read the Bible. And he said, you know, I found, found that I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I would be kind of, a, he said, I would be in a bad frame of mind for praying. I would just bellyache to God. He said, so what I decided to do was to read the Bible every day, find a promise, get myself in a praising mode find a promise, and then pray and talk to God. And I would claim the promises of God's word. And so uh, we, we tend to be, we get taken over by those things, by circumstances. We have to remember God's promise. God told them, I'm going to take you in there, and it's going to be yours. 
and the on the tangible side, they see that it is exactly as God promised, but they forget the promise. So they want to go back. There's the grumbling. And uh, Moses and Aaron, verse 5, they fall on their face and they pray. Joshua and Caleb, uh, they say to the congregation, verse 7, the land which we pass through spout, the land we pass through to spy it out, is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. <laughs> they're, they're a delicious treat. <laughs> We're going to chew them up and spit them out. You know, There's nothing to fear here. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. If you fast forward to the book of Joshua, um, remember Rahab, she tells the spies, we've been scared of you guys for 40 years over here. <laughs> so it, it, it was already done, but they didn't act by faith. Now here's the congregation's response to the exhortation in verse 10. Then all the congregation said, stone them with stones. <laughs> trust in the Lord obey God go forward by faith what's the response pick up some rocks and throw it this is often what happens to people who are leading the charge of faith exhorting people now I'm not going to say that so here's the saving grace but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel and the Lord said to Moses how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the things I have, all the signs I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Wow, this is the Lord's response. He, he is livid. He's livid. They're, they're not just, they're despising me. They're disesteeming me. Because they will not trust in me. They will not believe in me. And then you have Moses' intercession. Moses is always... Um, Moses is, is the prototype for a pastor. He's, he's the prototype. Because you have Moses, you have his whole ministry. From his calling to his death. His entire ministry with the nation, the congregation of the Lord, the nation of Israel. And so... Here it's striking. You see Moses, Moses, his intercession for the people. But at other times, Moses gets very angry with the people who are following him. Angry, not because of him or their disrespect of him, but because he knows they're disesteeming God. Now, at some point, um, every pastor is like this, I think. You kind of you kind of get you kind of forget it's not my business, it's God's business, and you take you can take things personally. It's very it's very easy to do. Um, just like in the Old Testament, the prophets, when they're delivering God's message, it's hard to tell when it's the prophet speaking or when it's the God speaking. They're kind of merged into one. And so you see you can see the trajectories here. You can see the trajectories. Or the uh, anyway. <clears throat> now in chapter fourteen, verse twenty. You have God's pardon. Moses intercedes. Then the Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word. Now, I call this a partial pardon because it's not full 
and complete. I call it partial because verse 21, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That, that's eschatological right there. As all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That, that's a future thing when the kingdom comes. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to test these 10 times, 10 times they've murmured against the Lord and have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it. So this is, I've pardoned them, but there's still going to be a natural consequence. There's going to be a suffering. But Caleb will not, because Caleb has a different spirit. Now, what's interesting here is whose name is missing? Hey, where, where happened to old Joshua? Hey, Tom. But Joshua, he he's mentioned later on, but he he's not he doesn't have this particular blessing here in verse twenty-four. And I think my own opinion about this is because Joshua, Caleb is older, Joshua is younger, and I think that it is. Joshua, who is receiving and encouraged through his faith from Caleb, an older man who's saying, we can believe God. And it trickles down to the younger generations. So we, as the grown adult fathers, men of the church, we, we have to realize that our faith sends a message down to younger generations. We, if we believe God, it, it trickles down. He will say, we're, we're following him too. We're trusting in him, right? So we can see the, the Amalekites are there. And the Lord says to Moses, uh, how long shall this congregation, this is verse 26, grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. And here, here's the strong statement. What you said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness. Now the authorized version says here, your carcasses. <laughs> stronger, stronger word. Of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. So basically, this older generation, the spies, who should have been the people who say, look, we've been, we've been crying about this for years. Our grandpas cried about it. God got us out of Egypt. Instead of saying, God can, they say, can God, question mark. And the consequence for that is they, or they die in the wilderness. And it's, it's so it's so broad. Every it's such a big judgment. Not one, verse thirty, shall come into the land that, where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said should become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness, and your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years. And all this, all this fear, is they, what's going to happen to the kids? You can see how these natural arguments would work out. We can't go in there and fight these giants because what's going to happen to the kids? But here the Lord says, I'm going to take care of all the kids. They're going to be, they're going to be in the wilderness as shepherds. This is going to be a, a, an important thing to Israel through their history. But this is what he says. It's going to be a forty-year, a forty-year judgment. Now, I call it partial judgment because this, everybody dying over twenty years of age, and uh, uh, forty years in the wilderness, 
So you have a death sentence and a prison sentence. Does it sound like pardon? <laughs> it's just, it's partial. There, there, there is a, a partial judgment for this. Now, this is the most striking thing. Verse 36. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. So these 10 guys who came back and say, God can't, we're not able, they don't, they don't get 40 years. They, they die by direct judgment, a plague before the Lord. Now what this plague is, we don't know, but it was something so stirring so frightening that it causes the people of Israel to rally themselves and try to go into the promised land. Look at verse 39. When the Lord told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly, and they rose up early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses says, Why now are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord? When that will not succeed. When that will not succeed, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For the Malachites and Canaanites are facing you, and you and you fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. And the Lord will not be with you. But they presume to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in all that country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So here, they hear the judgment. They see the people die. The, the, the ten bad, the bad speaking spies die. And they realize, we really screwed up here. We have done the wrong thing. And so they say, okay, now we're going to do what God says to do. Now we're going to go in there. And what, is, what, what does Moses say? It's too late, baby. That door is closed to you. That door is closed to you. You should have went immediately. Now back to Hebrews chapter 4, where the writer says, verse 1, this is from the King James Version, Let us therefore fear. Let us therefore fear. NIV says, uh, let us be concerned, I think. Let us fear, lest anyone fall short of the promise. The urgency is there. So the whole this whole decision in Hebrews, he's saying, do not go back, because if you go back, you're out. And this is something that comes up in Hebrews a couple times. Because in Hebrews chapter 6, you have that um, passage where it says that it is impossible for those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and were enlightened to be renewed again to repentance. So it's a very, it's, it's a big, it's a, Big challenge to them. Do not go back. Do not disbelieve God. Do not bis disbelieve God's messenger. So, look back at chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Therefore, four one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard 
did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who believed. Now, the authorized version says there, it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. Uh, what is the NIV? The NIV says, NIV says something different. What is it? Combined with faith. Is it, does the, does anybody have the new NIV? Yeah. What does it say? Does it have a different word, Bob? Uh, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Share. It's combined. It's all the, all the, the authorized version has the most unique reading, I think. Mixed with faith in the hearts of the people. Combined with faith. And I'm not sure that why the renderings of all those things, but um, the, basic, the basic point is that Verse 1, we should be concerned about missing the entrance into God's rest. We should fear. It's a big deal. If you don't, if you don't enter in, you're out. Verse 2, the knowledge, the, the knowledge of the good news, hearing the good news is not enough. You pronou they pronounce the gospel. The authorized version says the gospel is preached unto them as well as unto us. This good news message was heard by the people in at the edge of the promised land. They heard it, but they didn't believe it. Just hearing it is not enough. We have to hear it and act on it. Sometimes people in a Christian community, because they're inundated with the gospel, they hear it all the time. They go to church, they do the Bible stories. They think, oh, I'm a Christian. But it takes intentional personal faith. Intentional personal faith. That's why in a Christian church, um, if you don't regularly here, the gospel preached in a persuasive way that leads a person to decision, calling upon them to put their faith in God. You're going to have a, you're going to have a serious problem. We present the gospel as an imperative to be obeyed, and we call men to believe, to put their faith in Him now, because people have to be reminded to put their faith in there. You don't know you don't know who is there who is not really believing. So. Knowledge of the good news is not enough. It has to be believed. I might just turn that. I didn't. Okay. And verse 3 has an inter interesting. And, For we who have believed enter that rest. Now, the rest here is, it's, it's compared to the promised land. Entering into what God has prepared for them. Entering into rest. And so, the idea here is he's, when we believe the gospel, we enter into a rest as well. We enter, we enter into a Sabbath kind of rest. Now, this, is, this quotation is from Psalms 95, and I'm going to put my finger over there. And this is, this is something that you guys might want to take note of. Uh, if, you if you look in your Bible at Psalms 95, who does your Bible say wrote Psalms 95? Not all the Psalms have titles, but some of them do. Attributions. Yeah, mine doesn't. This, this, this particular edition doesn't. 95, yours does not? Yeah. But does yours say in different places? Like uh, a prayer of Moses. Yeah. So some of the Psalms have titles. They'll say a prayer of David, prayer of whoever. Psalms 95 is untitled normally, and I think probably that, that'll be universal. But 
In Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us who wrote Psalm 95. It's in verse 7. He appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long after in the words already quoted. So Hebrews says it's, it's David. So in the main Bible I read at home, I went to Psalm 95 and wrote David, <laughs> which means the number of Psalms David wrote goes up from 73 to 73 plus one. What is it, Bob? 70 something. <laughs> 74. <laughs> so. You're trying to get towards my age. <laughs> So interesting, these little tidbits you, you find, it. and uh, kind of the rule of thumb is what the New Testament says about something in the Old Testament. That's the that's the Holy Spirit's commentary on on those things. So like, if you ever have a question about Cain, the, the new the old the New Testament says Cain was a fornicator or a profane person. So all that kind of thing. Anyway, so here he talks about the Sabbath. We have believed, or we have believed, have entered that rest. As he said, I swore my wrath; they should not enter my rest. Now Psalms ninety five. The quotation is only from verse 7, the, the first few words of 7 and then 8. Psalms 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I was listening to a Bible teacher this week. He was talking about how in the New Testament, Psalms are often just cited by a few words, a few lines. And the uh, he said the reason for that, in his opinion, was that the, the Psalms were the songbook of the Hebrew church, the Old Testament church, and they were the songbook of the Christian church as well. And he said all he had to do, all the writers had to do was say a few words of a line of a psalm, and the rest of the words would fill in. And here's his, his, here's his example of that, and I'll use it on you guys. Amazing grace that I once was, but now. So there, so we, these songs are established in our, in our mind, the musical connection. And he said that's why in the Psalms, in the New Testament, these, these quotations in the Psalms are very small because the people, they, they know immediately what follows. Have you ever been in church singing a song, one of those old, old hymns of the faith, and you don't even realize you're thinking about it? The, the, the song that goes into verse 2, verse 4. Probably the only verse nobody knows in a Baptist church is verse 3. Because <laughs> I was first, second, and last. <laughs> the loneliest words in a hymn book are the third verse of a four-verse song. So, but we, but even then, sometimes we do know it. We, it's, it's just, so, that's the, so the Psalms, they're just partial quotations. But the full reading is through, through 11. In verse 10, 40 years. That takes us right back to that. Uh, to the Old Testament passage in Numbers. So he says, I've sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the rest here, this is where it gets a little bit heady in my opinion, in verse um, 3 and 4. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now what does this mean? 
his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Um, I'm leaning on I'm leaning on John Gill here. God has God had has ceased his working in a creative way because the Sabbath rest was is a creation ordinance. On the seventh day, the Lord rested because he had done all his creating work, and he rests on the seventh day. And this is a day. Um, um, Jesus says, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for who? Is made for us to enjoy a day of rest, a, a divine edict to cease from your labors and rest. And so the, the Lord rests. And the Lord doesn't rest because he's tired. He rests because he's done with his working. So God ceased his working in a creative way. But he's still working in a providential in providential matters, which he's still uh, doing things. So you remember Jesus said, uh, uh, "I work, and hitherto my Father works." So the Father is working, the Son is working in, 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 a, in providential ways. The bigger idea here is is God is not fatigued when he did all his his workings; they're they're fixed. You know, there's, sometimes this text will be used to teach about the decrees of God, that he made all his decrees and there's nothing else to decree because it was, it was all done. Now, it seems to hint that God, however, is working in salvation now. And in verse 7, it says that he is calling people. Now, this is, remember, when we talk about God, God is the, the name for the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three in one. And so, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. And then when you get into Colossians, who does Colossians say created the world? It says Jesus did. Then you get to Revelation, it says the same thing. So you're like, well, who was it? Was it God or Jesus? Well, the answer is that great, yes. <laughs> and they have the, the Holy Spirit brooding over the face of the waters, right? And so, all of the Trinity is involved in the creative act, and all the Trinity are are involved in salvation too. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Now, the the Son's uh, the Son's work is mediatorial. He died on the cross for our sins. He sits on the mercy seat in heaven, interceding for His people. And then the Holy Spirit is working now. There's an old poem. It's called "The Hound of Heaven." And it describes how the Holy Spirit goes through the world, hunting down God's people, sniffing them out, being pursued by the hound of heaven. And uh, have you ever been? Have you ever been running for your life from a from a dog, Rick? You ever been, you ever been, you ever escaped from prison and the dogs are after you? <laughs> so, if you've ever seen that uh, that old movie with the no, it's it's older than that. It's got a, it's a black guy and a white guy. Tony Kurt Tony Curtis, and uh, Sydney Portier, and they, and they're escaping, you know, and they're chained together, and you know they're they're going like they're they're running along, you know, and then they stop to the rest, then they hear oh oh and man, when they hear that dog, they get up, they're alarmed by it, you know, and the hound of heaven is the Holy Spirit. You think you're getting away? You think you think you've made it over the last hill? You think you finally crossed enough rivers that you can't smell anymore? Then all of a sudden you hear it, the voice of the shepherd, the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, 
Not not yet. <laughs> you haven't escaped me yet. Still reaching after so God. God is act. He's active in salvation, calling people to come to Him. And that's what we see in verse seven. I'll read that to you. Now I'm not gonna get down that far. But verses four through six talk about the Sabbath. Those who enter this Sabbath, this rest, can rest because God has provided salvation too, just as He provided the promised land to those who would believe his promises. So our option here is to be at rest or be disobedient. Now verse 4 says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's the Genesis account. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore, and that's the, they shall not enter my rest. That's referring to the numbers. The numbers reading, and we get that from Psalms 95. They are, they'll not enter my rest. Now, what, 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 the, what the writer is doing is he's going to tell us that there is a rest still. Because God said, nobody can enter the rest. If you don't believe me, that generation was cast aside. They cannot enter the rest. But now, he says, there, there remains for some to enter it. Those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of unbelief. If you do not enter the rest, just as they didn't enter the promised land, it's through disobedience. It was, and that puts a different slant on it, doesn't it? It wasn't, they weren't given a choice. It was a command. Go in to the promised land. Go in. And so if you don't believe in Christ, this is why we say the gospel is a, is a command. The voice of preaching is a, um, you know, the, the Greek words for it tell us it's like a divine herald. It's like a, uh, a bulletin from the governor, <laughs> you know, obey or else, right? And so this is the, if you don't obey it, you're disobedient. Now, verse 70, it says, he appoints a certain day. Today, this is from Psalms, saying through David so long afterward, after they didn't go into that initial rest, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts now. So what he's saying is that there was a time to enter in back then, and they didn't do it, and they perished. But this is another day, today. This is, this is the, new, the new covenant, the new dispensations come in. Today, believe. Today, believe. Is that a relative today, or is it a specific today? I think it's a relative today. Because it's ongoing, it's ongoing. Um, sometimes in dispensational thinking, Hebrews Hebrews is not a part of the New Testament era. It's for it's it's for the future. But I think it is it is to, it's today now. You see the same thing in Paul. Today is a day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. So it's it's today that this this new day of of hope is now. And for these people here, it was imminent for them. You know, and so it, it's 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 inspired scripture, so it is bigger than that. Doesn't the writer of Hebrews later he says, "While it is still today, mm -hmm. today while it is still today." Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it's a big window, it's a big window, and that and that's the great thing about the age of grace. You know, we we know what we know what begins at Pentecost, and it's going to go until Jesus returns. It's going to go until that's when today ends. That's when the darkness comes. Because think about Matthew. Jesus said, 
I am the lie of the world. Then as he's leaving, he tells the apostles, you are the lie of the world. Christians are the lie of the world. And so how you know when it's, how you know when it's daylight, two days, the day's light. It's daylight. But when all those, when, when we're gone, then it's dark. You know, and that's when the, just like Noah, when the Lord closed the ark on the, on the, closed the ark on the, <laughs> closed the door on the box. <laughs> you know, they, it, it, it's over. Um, so the option is to, to rest or be disobedient. This is, uh, John Owen says here, uh, he makes a big, a big emphasis to say, it's the duty of all men to obey this. It's the duty. It's laid upon the backs of all people. It's the duty to obey it. If you don't do your duty, then you suffer the consequences. Now in 7-11, through 11, you have the plea to the Hebrew Christians. He says, don't harden your hearts through unbelief. Now Martin Lloyd-Jones, he gives a talk on this. He says, unbelief is a power. Unbelief is a force. Because we're trying to be deliver people from unbelief. And he says it blinds, it hardens, it corrodes, it distances. He just goes through a long list. The whole world is in unbelief. Unbelief. So don't harden your hearts through unbelief. Now, I'm not going to press that too far. There is a rest for us. And this rest he's talking about is Christ. It's not a, it's not a place. It's a person. It's a person. It's, it's, Christ. it's, not, a, it's not a particular actual day it's it's pointing pointing us to christ and that's in 14 through 16 here's the reading from fourth since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is in every way in every respect but one i'm sorry but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. And this is our, this, the, newer, the, newer, the newer Bibles do something helpful here, is Jesus the high priest, the heading. You guys have the heading, Jesus the high priest? It puts 14 with chapter 5. And so it gives you a better... Better feel for the change of tone. Um, sir, why did he say in verse eight, "For if Joshua had given you less, God would not have stricken you by another day"? Did Joshua just push forward without uh, recognizing the Sabbath? Or? No, no, it's a good point. I, I, I didn't make a note to talk about that. I'm glad you brought it up. He's talking about um, now the King James version doesn't say Joshua; it says Jesus. Which is interesting, but but it means the same. Joshua and Jesus are the same name. But what he's talking about is when Joshua took them into the promised land, they entered the rest. Then they got the rest, and they they did finally have their promised land. But it wasn't over. Paul is saying there is there is another rest. If Joshua had completed the whole mission, then the psalmist wouldn't have said much later, five hundred years later, today if you'll enter my rest. So he's, 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 he's following the natural objections of the Jewish mind because they didn't have the rest in Moses' day because they disobeyed. 
Fast forward 40 years later, Joshua says, go in. What do they do? They go in. <laughs> and, they're, and to show you how serious they were about obeying God, right before they go into the promised land, some of the Israelites say, hey, you know, Moses said we could live on this side of the river, right? And so they say, okay, you, you, your kids can stay over on this side of the river. And then after we, but, you're, but the men have to go fight. And so they go back and they build their own altar on their side of the river. And the whole congregation of Israel comes back over there to kill them all. And, Moses, and they say, you're going to divide the people. Now, the, uh, the nuance of that is they just spent 40 years getting their butts kicked in the wilderness. And they don't want to take any chance that anybody else is going to mess it up. So they're very committed to that, right? Because when you go into... After Jericho, you go to Ai, and uh, Achan, Achan steals the, the forbidden treasures. And you see the whole congregation rising in one and stoning Achan and his whole family to death because he took of the accursed thing. Because the attitude of those Jews going in was, <laughs> we're not playing around. We don't want to miss the promise. We don't want to be robbed of it. And so Joshua took them into rest. But it wasn't it wasn't the final rest. There's another day, he says, woken up later on. Joshua didn't complete the job. First of all, he died before he had time to complete it. And the Israelites then never went on and, and completed their conquest. They were content to let the Canaanites live among them. Excellent. That's 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 an excellent observation. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So then, verse nine, there remains a rest of the people of God. Whoever's entered God's rest has also rested his work. This is reference to that Psalms 95. That's why you go back to Psalms 95. Um, and, and you have to pay attention to the, the timing of it. This is, um, that's, that's 500 years later where the Lord, the psalmist is saying, today, it's still ongoing, still a time to enter in to by faith. Uh, 7 through 11, you know the rest. 12 through 13. Is uh, talks about the word of God. And if you ever go to a church, a lot of pastors will quote uh, verse twelve when they read the scriptures or before they give a sermon. Um, the authorized version says the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit, and is the discerner of thoughts and tends to the heart. The uh, but I want you to think about this. I put it in your notes. This is something John Owen says. Because usually we take 4, 12, and 13 and attribute it to the written word of God. But I'll read note, Owen's note. John Owen says the word of God here is the person of Jesus Christ. And his reason is because of the attributes. So I was struck by that because you could almost have a superstitious regard for scripture you can almost have a superstitious regard um anyway i'll read i'll read this for the word of god is living and active sharper than a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, um, 
That really gave me pause, what Owen said about that. A person, not the written word of God. Um, so, therefore, what say you? <laughs> what are your thoughts about that? That was the most striking thing that I was, uh, that really, I'd never thought about it in those terms. Well, when he said when he said that that it wasn't the written word of God, when he said that it made it made sense to me that it was talking about Jesus, and because um, I've always attributed it to the script to the to the scriptures, the word of God in in total. what really stuck me up about it was it seemed Gil seemed Owen seemed correct because it does sound more like a person than than the book yeah but yes but are the are the words are the words are the are the words divine is this is this book does the word of God possess does it have the attributes of God you know, it tells us about them, but is it, um, I guess we worked it out, like, if we have ESV, NIV, all the, all the variant readings, you know, so, <laughs> what, what is it, uh, now, I, I still, I, my, my initial writing on this, when I put it down, was, uh, I'll put it here. Our resource for strength or ability to rest is the word of God. It's the, the promises, right? The promises of God. We can trust the word or promise of God because the word is powerful. And God's knowledge, and I added this sentence, God's knowledge is complete so he knows he really believes and who doesn't because of what it says in the last part of verse 12. It's a, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So I treated it like a written word in the first sentence. Then the second sentence, I treat it like a person and say, God knows. We were resting the promises. So um, Owen, did, Owen didn't hint at it being, being scripture. Um, but if you're going back to John 1-1. That, that, that is what he's doing. It is what he's doing, the word. But the thing is, he doesn't capitalize the word here, but it is in John 1. So, well, there's different, different writings. So. Yeah, well, that's capitalization in the in the English Bible is always a matter of for the editors, right? So, like, if you look at, in the Greek, it was either all capital, uh, the Greek, in the, in the Greek, uh, the printed editions, They'll have upper lowercase to for the deities like logos have a capital uh, lambda or a small lambda, but in in the original manuscripts, they either wrote in all capital letters or they wrote in all lowercase letters, and so 
whoever was writing, when John wrote John, he didn't make a capital uh, W. He was just a lowercase w, or in his case, be a, lam a lambda, lower a lowercase one. So, um, no. takes us to First Peter one twenty two, where he says, "You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God." For uh, flesh is like grass. But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Mm -hmm. Again, yeah. And that that word, the word for word there, is is not the regular word either. Okay. I think it's I think it's Rama there, which is the word of power. Because in First Peter, to me that sounds like Jesus, born again by Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, not by not not by the written word, right? That's that's kind of the. I thought I thought what Owen said was was. Sent me back on my heels about it. Um, I don't think now I don't know if that position. Um, do you think that that position would? lesson because uh, we we use certain proof texts all the time for stuff right we we whip them out does that lessen the does that cause you to not lean on god's word as much or does it yeah you probably never thought of it if i if owen hadn't written you ask the question so now now just take that position whether you believe it or not why does it set you back on your heels Oh, because I've just used that. I've whipped this verse out on people. The word of God is quick and powerful. You know, the word of God, you know, it it cuts you up. <laughs> Hurts my sermon illustration. I guess maybe it doesn't. It's just the text you can't. It's just the text you can't use like you use it in the past. That, that's what. That's what I that's what I mean by that. Couldn't be an ambiguous thought. Couldn't be both. Yeah, probably. Cool. That's that's the way I treated it when I wrote it. When I wrote it down that way. One is question. Okay. Maybe a heretical question. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand the Trinity. How can we say that? No, you can't say that. Because Jesus is Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Spirit. They're God. They're so they're also the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But they're but they're the names for them are their are their separate persons. That's their personality. They the, the person of the Father, person of the Spirit, person of the Son. These three are the one God, the one true God. So no, you can't say that wrong. So that, the names aren't the same. Each one has specific attributes. Yeah, that's, Jesus has a role, the Holy Spirit has a role, God yeah. has a role. Yeah. But they're all they all have their differences. And I don't know whether it was you that gave us that 
triangle I did. That was me. the Trinity where it says Jesus is not the Father, is not yeah. the Father. I gave that to you. Yeah, that's that's yeah. But then we're talking about the the, the written. That's what I was saying. You can, there can kind of a superstitious regard for scripture where it's uh Itself, or is it something else that makes you think about what's going on in your life? Hmm. Well, the Bible does do that, though, doesn't well, it? Well, it does, but is it? But it's not the words itself. It's convincing you or something, or in, in you, makes you convince you. It says, I think it says in First Corinthians, First Corinthians, these things are spiritually discerned. So, a Christian, when a Christian reads the Bible. It's a different impact than when a non-Christian reads the Bible. Although a non-Christian can read the Bible and then be born again through the but through the Holy Spirit working in them. Um, so it's not the word necessary for other actions. That's why he's saying the attributes. Yeah. I just I, – because I've seen – I've seen and I've had myself a superstitious regard for scripture where you say like the word of God is Jesus. Jesus is the word. And so the natural implications of that, well, so when you write in your Bible, you're writing on Jesus. You know, if you don't read your Bible, you're neglecting Jesus. That kind of, that, that kind, of well, kind of thinking. Scripture is the Holy Spirit. I don't think you can say is the Holy Spirit. I don't think I don't think you can say is the Holy Spirit produced by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in, in Timothy. Inspired, produced. Yeah, breathed out. Yeah. When you say is, that's equivalent, right? This is represents. Represents the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't like those words either. Anyway. That's that's true in some regards, I think. The last thing I put here is to put who is our rest and who has done the work of that. And then you roll right into chapter five where Jesus is the great the great high priest. And we're gonna and then the chapter, the, the next big controversial section, it will be chapter six, where you have the um, can people fall away? If they do fall away, can they be renewed to repentance? There's a couple ideas about that. But um, that's the. No? I'm just going to read what John Owen says. <laughs> Let the chips fall where they, where they may. Now, today I use the ESV. Uh, is it significantly different than... Was there, was there any major differences? I compare I compared the... with the NIV. Um, anything that was strikingly different to you? All right. Oh, we got to go into Melchizedek, too.
in chapter 7. You guys will have a lot of fun thinking about chapter 7. My old, my old preaching notes. I took, I took the, I took the really outside the box position. <laughs> I knew how Kizadek was. Because I, I'm going to turn off this recording. <laughs>